Thank you, choir, for that. I didn't get to say potentate, but that's okay. <laughs> I do. That's a good word. It's a word that we don't use nearly enough in our English vocabularies. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them today. We're going to continue our study in Paul's letters to the church at Colossae, and we're going to continue it in chapter 3 and beginning in verse 1. Now, as you turn there, uh, just let me note that I asked Dana to list for us uh, our text being verses 1 through 17, uh, and that is what we're going to read today just in order to get this whole passage in front of us, but this will be at least uh, a two-parter of a sermon, and you'll take note in your bulletin that I, I've noted that in our sermon title. Uh, and so this is going to be uh, two weeks probably here in chapter 3 and verses 1 through 17 but let's read it all together so that we can just have it in our minds, what the, the extent of Paul's argument here, okay? So beginning in verse 1, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we know and we even now confess that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desperately, as your people, we need to hear from you, our Redeemer and our King. And so we ask that you would be pleased to meet with us in this time. And that through the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit, that you might open our eyes and our hearts to behold you and to worship you, our triune God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Despite uh, my general aversion to reality television, and despite my lack of ability as a carpenter or as a home improver, 
Uh, I have found myself, maybe like many of you, being sucked in over the last few years uh, by this wave of home improvement television that is so prevalent, and you turn on your TVs today, right? There's, these shows are, are everywhere. Um, it began, I think, with Fixer Upper, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines, and now it has moved on to the folks down in Laurel, the, the hometown bunch. Uh, but really, I will watch most any of the ones that are available, most any of the ones that come on. Now, I've tried to figure out just exactly why this is so appealing to me, uh, because as I just said, I have no ability to do the things that they are actually doing. You know, if I decide to knock out a wall, one, it will probably be an accident, but if I did decide to do that, or if I decided to remodel my kitchen, we would just be down a wall or a kitchen, right? It would just be, it would be pointless. Nothing would happen. I would enjoy the destruction of it all probably, but that's a different story. Um, we would most definitely be in worse shape than we were when we started. So it's not because I'm learning anything as I watch these shows. I actually, I think it's because I enjoy seeing the absolute transformation, the complete transformation that these builders and designers are able to achieve uh, with properties that often seem to be ready to be demolished. You know, you'll have these houses that there's holes in the floor and there's like grass growing up through the floor and all of this stuff, and they're able to take them and turn them into places where you're like, you know what, I think I could live there. Um, and so they build up to this big reveal, and I know it's all for television. You know, they, they cut just at the right time, and they, they build up the, the drama by adding these things that probably really didn't happen. But there's something appealing about it. Now, you know, when they pull back those big billboards and the, the new house is right there in front of you, you're like, man, that's, that's pretty impressive. I wish in my heart I could do that, but... Um, I can't. So, it, but it is the, the transformation, the complete transformation that I think is so appealing to me. Now, I begin there this morning because as we turn to Paul, as we consider what he's saying to us here in chapter 3, it is that idea of complete transformation that I think he is showing to us here, right? In short, what he wants to say to us is the change that Jesus brings and also that he requires in the lives of his people uh, is, is going to impart, is going to mean a complete uh, 180. It's going to mean a complete transformation in the lives of those who belong to him. Now, friends, I don't know if I can emphasize enough how important this reality is for each of us today. How important it is for each of us to consider this in these moments. Uh, Renee was, was listening to a podcast this week, and the host threw out this, this statistic. Um, I don't know if it is accurate, but I have a feeling that it probably is. It went like this. He said that something like 5 to 6% of those in America who profess to be Christians. Now, I'm not talking about people outside of the church. This is people inside of the church professing to be Christians. 5 to 6% actually hold to orthodox biblical Christianity. 
Five to six percent. That's a staggering number. That means out of a hundred people, five to six actually believe and to submit to historical articulations of the faith. Believe what the Bible says. And so it seems that rather than submitting to the word, rather than being transformed by it, what many want to do is to take the word and submit it to themselves, right? They want to transform God's word. They want to transform what he says to us to fit our lifestyle, to fit our opinions, to fit our desires. They want a partial transformation, but they don't want a complete transformation. But friends, if Jesus is as supreme, if he is as preeminent as Paul has suggested to us up until this point, if he is the Lord of creation and the Lord of redemption, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily, then the idea that we can set the rules, the idea that we can kind of mold him into our likeness, friends, that's an absolute joke. Now, we are the ones who are like that house with the, the roof that has holes in it and the, the grass growing up to the floor. That, that's us before him. We are, stand in need of complete transformation. Now, thanks be to God, over the next two weeks, we're going to see that that's exactly what he does in our lives. That's exactly what he does in our hearts. He transforms us completely. What I want each of us to do today, what, what I, I need you to do in these moments, given the statistics that I just said, is I need you to begin to search your own heart and ask, have I really experienced this complete life-transforming reality of knowing and believing and resting in Jesus? Does my life show the evidence of a complete transformation. Well, let's look at it together and let's see how, it, how Paul describes this transformation. First in this passage, I want you to see a new foundation. A new foundation. In other words, what Paul describes here, what he says to us is that we have fundamentally moved positions. We have fundamentally moved worldviews in Christ. And, and notice it's one that does rest in him. If there is a single theme to chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, it is Jesus. Four times in the first four verses, he mentions Christ. And then five times in the next 13, he mentions Christ. Paul centers all of this in Jesus. The whole Christian life is centered in him. He is the basis, the heart, the foundation. Christians are those people, Peter says, who have moved from the realm of darkness, death, and enslavement to sin to his, Jesus' glorious light. Once we were like that man who built his house on the sand, but now we are like that man who built his house on the rock, the cornerstone the only sure foundation, who is Jesus. You know, it's almost like we can speak of this uh, in physical terms. Right now, you are in the building, right? 
In just a moment, hopefully, you're going to go outside of the building. Your position is literally going to change. You're going to go from one spot to another. That's what Paul is describing here. To put it another way, maybe in a way that will help us more. Uh, You can think of this in terms of adoption. Think of that child who stands in need of adoption. What's their, their legal status? They are legally... Maybe in, the state is in charge of them in some way. They are legally bound to the state in some way. What's their social status? Maybe they're, they're an orphan. Uh, maybe they are uh, abandoned, whatever they may be. What's their economic status? It's, it may not be great. And what's their view of themselves? Well, it's colored by all of these things, right? But then, imagine that that family comes along and adopts that child. And immediately, immediately, when the papers are signed and it's done, what changes? Their legal status. No longer are they controlled by the state, but now they have parents, a father and a mother. Socially, no longer are they an orphan, but they are now a child. Economically, things change, and because of all of that, their view of themselves has changed. They have fundamentally, my point is they have fundamentally moved their status. They were once here, and now everything has changed, and they are here. Well, friends, there is a reason why the Bible uses that idea of adoption so often. It's because our status, our position has fundamentally moved from one place here to another place here. Our foundation has changed so that we are now in Christ. This is that term that that Paul loves so much and he uses it over and over again in this passage. We are in Jesus. Now look, this is as, as fundamental, this is as, as Christianity 101 as it gets. And I recognize that. But it is the most critical truth of the Christian life. And it's one that we so easily get confused. I want you to listen to what Calvin says in his Institutes. He says, first, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, Without that status change, and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Therefore, to share in what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. For as I have said, all that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. As long as he remains outside of us, none of his benefits benefit us in any way. The problem, however, and as we think about that 5 to 6% statistic that I quoted earlier, is that many of us, we like to talk about, we like to claim the work and the benefits of Christ, but we want to do it apart from the person of Christ. We want the benefits with no foundational shift, okay? We want all that Christ can offer to us, 
but we don't want to have to change status. Again, let me quote to you Martin Luther. He says, it is impossible for one to be a Christian unless he possesses Christ. If he possesses Christ, he possesses all the benefits of Christ. In other words, we like to, to think about and talk about, especially as Reformed people, abstract facts. We like to talk about truths, doctrines, and that's good. We need those things. We like to think about eternal life and glorification and peace and comfort and security. But we do it all too often without recognizing that Jesus, the triune God, he is not an abstract thought. He's not a set of facts that we can just rehearse. He's not a cosmic genie that's just up there fulfilling all of our needs. What he is, is a person. A person not in a human sense, but he is a personal being. And what does that real, what does that mean? It means that, that in order to have any real interaction, any real blessing, any real benefit between two persons, what do you need? You need a relationship. And in this case, you need a relationship with the God of all creation. And it requires an all-encompassing, life-transforming, foundational, moving relationship. Friends, Jesus is not interested in being your genie. He's not interested in being your hazard insurance policy. No, he says that he is the good shepherd who knows his sheep. That he is the elder brother who shares in his, his inheritance with us. He is a friend of sinners, meets them right where they are. He is the high priest, the mediator between God and man. He is the advocate interceding on our behalf. Now, what do all of those words, those describing words of Jesus, those titles, what do they all imply? They're relational words. Christianity, at its heart, is a relationship. A, a whole that's the whole point of covenant theology, if you're into that sort of thing, and y'all know that I am. The, the goal of God's covenant as a whole was what? I will be your God and you will be my people. That The whole point of the covenant from the beginning was that God would stoop down in his mercy and in his grace and he would enter into relationship with those that he had created. That he now has placed us as in the fulfillment of all of that in Christ. Now, friends, I know that I'm really overworking this. But I truly believe it may be the greatest challenge facing those who are in the church today. And that's all of you, and that's me too, all of us standing in this place right now. I really and truly believe it is the answer to that 5 to 6% statistic that I quoted earlier. Romans 1 makes it clear that all of us, are perpetual idol factories, that we are constantly producing idols in our lives, that we're worshiping created things rather than the creator himself. We love to, to take the, the good things that God has made and we glorify and we worship them. 
Chief among those are his benefits to us. The problem is that we then go and we keep him at arm's length. We say, Jesus, I love the idea that you can give me eternal life. I love the idea that you can give me peace and comfort. And so I want all of those things, but I'm going to keep you right here. I'm going to keep you sort of outside. And and I'm going to hope that sort of maybe by osmosis that all of those things come to me. Christianity fundamentally means a change of position from being outside to being in Christ. It's full, life-transforming relationship. Friends, are you walking in that relationship today? Are you standing on this solid rock? If not, then all that I'm going to say, not only today moving forward, but in the next two weeks, it's going to mean very little to you. As Calvin said, it's not going to benefit you all that much. Chiefly, at the beginning, you need to ask, am I in union with Christ? One more quote from John Murray. He says, nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Jesus. It is union with Christ in him that is the foundational truth of Christianity from beginning to end. So, complete transformation means... A new foundation. A new foundation. Secondly, in this passage, and finally for today, I want you to notice that a complete transformation means a new identity. A new identity. And if you were ever in youth group when I was uh, active in that, uh, then you know that this is a, a truth that is near and dear to my heart. Because we are in Christ, because He is, Paul says, our life, because all things are now wrapped up in him. Not only do we have a new identity, but Jesus is our identity. I want you to think about all the ways that the Bible expresses that truth. It says that we have been raised with him, that we have died with him, that he is our life, that we are going to appear with him in glory. That he is our resurrection. He is our eternal life. That that there is now no condemnation in him. In him we are held together. In him we are being conformed to his image. In him we are sons and daughters of God. Now look, I could keep going. But the reality of it is, is that this relationship is so all-encompassing that Paul says in Galatians 2.20, on top of your uh, bulletin there, that I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, that identity is gone, but Christ lives in me, right? His identity has changed. The things that once defined him, the things that gave his life meaning and purpose. Philippians chapter 3, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, zeal, trained, all of those things. They're now rubbish as compared to knowing Jesus. They define him no longer. Christ is his identity.
Now, friends, with the short time we have left, I want us to think about the significance of what I just said. I want you to think about, in the world that we live in, the, identi- the, 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 the significance of knowing that your identity rests solely in Christ. Think about it from a spiritual perspective. Your spiritual standing. How is it that you are able to stand before a holy God? How is it that you are able to receive from Him blessing and not curse? How is it that you have any sort of real assurance or peace when it comes to the security of your salvation? How can you have lasting hope of eternal life given our proclivity, even as Christians now, to still sin? The answer is that your identity no longer stands in the things that you have done, but it now stands in Christ. Hear me when I say this. When God looks at you, if you are a Christian here today, he no longer sees, as it was described at our men's prayer breakfast Friday morning, he doesn't see your junk. What he sees is his son. He sees Jesus. He no longer sees your sins and your failures and your doubts. No, he sees his perfect, sinless son whose life and righteousness has been accredited to your account. Let me quote to you from Luther one more time. My holiness, my righteousness, and purity do not stem from me, he says, nor do they depend on me. They come solely from Christ and are based only in him in whom I am rooted by faith, just as sap flows from the stalk in the branches. Now I am like him and of his kind. Both he and I are of one nature and essence, and I bear fruit in him and through him. The fruit is not mine, but it is the vine's. I love that last line. The fruit is not mine, but it is the vine's. It is Christ in me. As Paul says, he is our lives. Friends, what, what assurance, what hope this brings us. Nothing, absolutely nothing can change your status before God, Romans 8, right? Nothing can separate us from his love because, not because we're perfect, not, not because we don't continue to sin, not because we won't fail, because we do all of those things, even as Christians. No, our status doesn't change because nothing can change the way that God the Father feels about God the Son. And He is the sole basis for our Christian spiritual identity. Secondly, not only has our spiritual identity changed, but notice our worldly identity has changed. Again, um, we live in a world where, where people are searching for identity. Whether they, they call it that or not, whether they recognize it or not, that's what they're looking for. And so they look for it in, in gender. They look for it in, in sexuality. They look for it in, in relationships or nationality or race or jobs or money or politics or, or the, the, some standard that the world sets for us, pop culture, whatever it may be. We're looking for identity in all of these places, but the obvious problem, what the world is declaring to us, is that none of these things seem to be doing the trick, right? 
People are, are still miserable, and they're still searching for something to identify them. Friends, as, as Christians, and this is, this is a joy for me to be able to stand up here and say this to you today. As Christians, we don't have that sort of identity crisis. We, we don't have to live up to some imaginary standard set by the world. We don't have to base our identity in our gender or our nationality or our race or any of those things. If you look at verse 11, he makes that very clear to us. We, we don't have to always run the, the rat race, you know, keep up with the Joneses. We don't have to seek love and approval and meaning from worldly things. Why? Because in Christ, all of these things are irrevocably set in stone. If you're a Christian here today, consider what Christ has declared to be true about you. He has declared that you have worth. He has declared that you have ultimate value. You are worth enough for the second person of the Trinity to become incarnate. You are worth enough to pass through the Garden of Gethsemane, to go to a cross, to, to die a sinner's death for, to bear the wrath of God for. Now certainly, lest we boast, it's not a worth that is intrinsic to us given our sin, but it is a worth that God himself, by his grace, has declared about us. He sent his son to die in our place. Clearly, he values his people. What, what on earth, what person, what thing can give you any more value, can give you any more worth than what God has given us here in Scripture? Not only has he given us worth, but he has declared irrevocably that you are loved no greater love has a man than that he would lay down his life for his friend but God shows us his love and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us for God so loved the world that he sent his only son see what great love the father has for us that we are called children of God. And so we are. We can keep going. But the, the point is made. In Christ, God has declared his love to us. Who can love you better than this? Who can love you more than God or longer than God? And you don't have to seek love in all of these places that the world holds up to you. You don't have to seek it in idols and relationships and all of those things. He loves you more than any of that. Last thing. He has declared that you are secure. You know, part of, of our identity crisis is we want security. We, we want things to be solid. We, we want things to be okay. The, the problem, of course, is nothing in this world can give us that because nothing in this world lasts. But friends, Jesus... He can secure our past and our present and our future because he himself is the one who does not change. 
It is eternal security. He is always the same. And so, as we've said, our status doesn't change. We are as secure in him as any person could be. Well, friends, we could go on with all of these great things that our identity, the way our identity has changed. Because it's all-encompassing. But I think one last quote will do the trick for us. It says, your true identity is as a child of God. This is the identity you have to accept. Once you have claimed it and settled in it, you can live in a world that gives you much joy as well as pain. You can receive the praise as well as blame that comes to you as an opportunity for strengthening your basic identity. Because the identity that makes you free is anchored beyond all human praise and blame. You belong to God. And it is as a child of God that you are sent into the world. Let me say that last line to you again. You belong to God. You are a child of God if you're resting in Christ today. And as a child of God, he now sends you out into the world. And so we have two aspects of a complete transformation. A new foundation on the one hand, and also flowing from that new foundation, a new identity. Now next week we're going to come back and we're going to see two more of these foundation or these, these uh, complete transformational aspects of what Jesus has done for us. But for now, I want us to end where we started. Again, with that, that 5 to 6% statistic. Friends, what's clear in all of this is that Jesus is all in with his people. He, he, he calls us to be all in with him, and he is clearly all in with us. He's not messing around. He's not playing games here. He gave his life to make us his own. And so, it shouldn't be surprising to find, given what he intends to do in us, that he would call us to complete, wholehearted devotion in return. Honestly, given our new foundation, our new identity, both in Jesus, it can be no other way. And so I ask you one last time, Have you been transformed by this great gospel today? Are you, fundamentally, is your foundation shifted? Are you now in Christ? As we pray together, Father, we call out to you, and we ask that each of us might be able to confess that truth, that we are resting in Jesus and in him alone, and we thank you that that when we are, uh, we see the, the truth that our foundations have changed, Uh, that our status has changed from where we were to what we are now, uh, and that our identity is is new, that it rests in you, that it rests in something that will never change. And we cannot be any more loved, any more valued, any more secure than what we are in Christ. And so help us uh, to rest in that identity. Help us to rest on that foundation and it alone. Lord, for for anyone here who does not know that truth and is not resting in Christ, Lord, today may you pierce their hearts by this your word. May the Holy Spirit be at work in them, moving in their hearts so that they might trust in Christ and him alone. And Lord, we thank you that you do love your people, that you have condescended through that great covenant of grace. You have come to us and declared, I will be your God and you will be my people and you have made us your people. 
in and through Christ. And we ask all of these things, and we praise you in his name. Amen.